the oldest church, the first church ever built in Victoria, right now, 12 years ago, my wife, or soon-to-be wife, was walking down the aisle towards me. So it's our 12th wedding anniversary today. My lovely wife was sitting in the front row, but now she's probably uh, gone off with the baby somewhere. And uh, we got married on a uh, Saturday morning, it was, 3rd of July, uh, right in the city at um, Scott's Church, which is the Presbyterian Church, uh, right in the middle of the city on the corner of Russell Street and Collins Street. It was the first church ever built in Victoria. So, yeah, just incredible. So it's been an amazing journey of ups and downs and four children. And if you're married, you know what it's like. It's, uh, it's an interesting uh, challenge and journey all the way through. But uh, I was going to say something really beautiful to my wife, but she's not here, so I can't. So can you all pass on to her, though, that I said something in the service and say, wow, your husband's so amazing. That's great. <laughs> on Wednesday morning this week, um, the census data started to come out. It came out Tuesday and it was dribbling out a bit. Wednesday. So we do a, a census, if you didn't realise, uh, every five years as a nation. And we did one last year in 2021. And uh, the, the information started to dribble out this week. And I was just praying right right at the back here in the prayer room here on Wednesday morning. Um, and I was looking at a couple of the articles about Christianity in Australia, which has really dived again over the, ne- over the last um, five years. And I thought, I've got, to, I've got to do something about this, talk about this with someone. So I um, uh, text messaged Lyle Shelton, who's the uh, head of the Family First political party in Australia, and also Mark Jury, who was down here with us a couple of months ago, who's a great uh, Anglican minister and cultural commentator. And we did a podcast, you may have seen it, uh, during the week, just talking about Christianity. We've got some statistics um, here for you this morning. And uh, so 44% of Australians uh, have identified as uh, Christian in this census. In 2016, the last census, that was 52%. Uh, so that's, that's a big drop. And then before that, in 2011, that, it was 61%. So we've had a 17% drop in Aussies identifying as Christian in, in a decade. So it's a pretty big drop. Uh, about, that's about 8 million people right now saying that they're a Christian in Australia, but only about 7% of those who say they're a Christian actually go to church or actively participate in a church uh, community. So it can be a little bit misleading anyway because a lot say, I'm a Christian, I believe in the Christian beliefs, but actually practicing Christianity, following Jesus, actively involved in a local church, it's actually only about 7%, 6 or 7%. Uh, of Australians. So the no religion um, mark uh, on the uh, census data went up again to 39%. So sometimes you'll hear these people who select no religion uh, referred to as the nuns. Uh, so not none as in priest and nun, but nuns as in none. They have no religion or no kind of faith, which in a global sense or a historical sense is really, really odd. It's really, really odd. Most countries around the world look at countries like Australia. Uh, or, or, or some Western European countries that have no religion, and it's really weird because most people in the, who are alive right now, most people of all of human history have completely believed in some kind of spiritual, uh, supernatural dimension. It's a very uh, modern, post-enlightenment, post-truth, post-Christian kind of modern person who thinks that uh, having no religion is uh, cool or acceptable or, or, or a thing, but it's on the rise about about 7.5 million Aussies now. So basically, people identifying as Christian and people identifying as nuns, no religion is about, is about the same now. So interestingly, it gets even more personal for us. Ready? Hold on to your seats here. If you read the Herald Sun this week, this article was in there. Town not so faithful. Oh, that's some crazy town somewhere out there in Australia that I've probably never heard of. Well, hang on a second. Let's look at the tagline. Langwarren. Home to most non-believers. Who lives in Langwarren here? Right, I want you to stand up. No, I don't want you to stand up. I, love, I lived in Langwarren for about 10 years, so I played for the Langwarren Soccer Club for a long time, and I'm sure some of you probably live in Langwarren or have lived in Langwarren. Amazingly, out of all of Australia, the suburb of Langwarren has the most non-believers or the highest percentage of non-believers. Now, as a pastor, what do you do as a pastor? What do you do as a, a Christian? If you're here this morning as a believer, a follower of Jesus, do you get de- disappointed? Do you get depressed? Do you like, what do we do about this? You know, 
I, I might be a bit weird, I get excited. I get excited because I, I, I think this is great news. Yes, I want most Christians possible because I believe in God. Yes, I would love our nation to be the most Christian nation possible with our political policies and the way that our culture is. Of course I will because I believe that that's the truth. But I get excited with the decline because it means that we need God more than ever. And it means as Christians, if we really believe that what we believe in is the truth, then, man, we need to get our act together more than ever. We need to know what we believe. We need to be great at communicating what we believe. And we need to understand that most people out there, this is going to help us understand, most people out there that don't go to church like us uh, are not necessarily basing their lives on the Bible, (laughs) and are not necessarily thinking through the lens of a Christian worldview and God existing and Jesus being the Son of God. They might believe Jesus is a historical figure that existed, but maybe they don't even believe Jesus was real or was a person. It's just a made-up thing. I, it gets me excited. But what's happening here? Is, is Christianity, is it finished in Australia? Is it kind of over? Is it going to just keep declining, like 10% every census until there's just no one really left? Well, probably, and I spoke about this in the podcast with Mark Durian and Lyle Shelton, probably a big part of why Christianity has decreased to 44% is because of the shedding of nominal faith. So a lot of people before who would have ticked Christian because, yeah, I kind of believe that stuff, or my parents were Christians, so I suppose I'm a Christian. I think a lot of people have, have, have now been more honest and just said, well, I haven't been to a church for six years, let's be honest, so I'm not really a Christian, and they've ticked, uh, so the nominal aspect has fallen off. The second one there is we live in a post-Christian culture. That's a real, really strong reality now. So it wasn't like that for a long time in Australia. Australia was founded on Christian values. It was always um, appreciated of our Judeo-Christian history, but that really now has become uh, something of the past, and we're moving more and more towards a secular country. There's a lot of histol- uh, hostility sorry, towards Christianity. You might have seen a bunch of the campaign uh, to, to, to tick no religion in the census, and a lot of the motivation of that is so that Christian groups and Christian churches don't get tax benefits and don't get all of these kind of things. So there's some hostility there. The naturalistic worldview is growing more and more and more, and that's really concerned with materialism and things, things that you can touch, material things. Only what I can see and touch is real. Um, So that's the naturalistic worldview, different from the Christian worldview. Expressive individualism uh, is a huge thing now. So the right for you to do whatever you want with your time. People have options, people have money, people have entertainment options. It's a wrestle even for Christians, isn't it? Even to come to church on a Sunday is a wrestle for Christians because there's so many options. There's brunch and there's take a shift at work and there's kids sport. There's all kinds of things that we could do instead of going to church. And those options, because of our wealth, as a country, when there's more money, there's more options, uh, Christianity then becomes, oh, do I do that or do I not? Do I go to church? Do I not? Do I put some money there or do I not? I could spend money here. There's a lot of options now. Go back 50, 60 years ago and guess what happened on a Sunday morning? Everyone woke up, all the shops were shut and 95% of the town went to church. Some people didn't even really believe it, but just everyone went to church. And then if you wanted to get married, well, it had to be a girl from the church. If you wanted to play cricket, we had to play cricket for the church cricket club, and everything was through the church. But now things are very different. But I think it's a good thing. I'm excited. I'd rather get honest. Let's get honest as a country and what we really believe. I'd rather people who say they're Christians get honest and go, well, if you're a Christian, then let's follow it properly. Let's do it well. Let's really be Christians. What is our response to this Christian decline? We've got three options. I want to give you three options this morning of how we respond to this. The first option is flight. Do we run? Flight or fight? Do we run? Look at your neighbor and say, flight or fight? What would you do? Do you want to run or do we want to fight this Christian decline? I don't know about the, your neighbor you just spoke to, but from my perspective, looking out there, you look like you all want to run. <laughs> Go hide in a hole somewhere. You know, it's not a bad option, is it? Christians have done this for a lot throughout human history. Let's just get away. 
let's go make a Christian town in the woods and raise our kids Christian, get them away from all the horrible things of the city and of the world. Let's, let, let's get out of here. You know, but that's not a great option either because so much part, part of Christianity, a huge part of being a Christian is actually participating in life and being part of the world and being in the local schools and community and workplaces. So running away is not a great option. But what about fighting? Is there any fighters out there? No, see, you're all, you're all runners. <laughs> Are there any warriors here? Fighting, maybe fighting is a good option. Now, let's probably not take up arms, okay? We're not Americans, like... <laughs> sorry if you're American here. <laughs> let's not take up arms, but, um, you know, do we fight, do we fight politically? Let's organize. A lot of Christians would like to fight politically. Let's get Christian policies and Christian political parties, and let's all become part of Christian lobby groups. Let's fight this thing with policy and legislation and marching in the streets. It's an option. And there's definitely some things we should march in the streets for, but, you know, fighting often divulges just into divisive politics and maybe it, maybe it becomes fighting in the sense of everything's demonic. We're, so we're fighting this devil out there, that the politicians are demonic and the, and, and, and the high business, you know, the, the, the banking end of town, the high, the high end of Collins Street is where all the demonic stuff happens and business and money and that system. Do we fight things and call things demons and, and pitch, pitch our enemy out there somewhere and we're fighting against this enemy out there? We're the Christians that are kind of beaten up and we've got to fight back in some kind of way. Is that, is that how we want to pitch this decline in Christianity in our nation? Maybe we should just fight by judging everyone. That would be a good option, wouldn't it? Let's just point out all the sinners so that they know how bad they are. And us, who go to church once a month, we are the good people and we could just walk around with a giant finger Maybe that would be a good way to fight it. Like, let's just separate the good and bad. Let's just, don't worry about God doing the goats and the sheep at the end of time. Let's just, just point out the goats and point out the sheep right now. Let's just call it as it is. Is that a good option? This is going to surprise you, but there's a third option. Did anyone pick up I was building to another option? Oh, you guys know me too well, don't you? Now? This is a bit of a weird option. This is the Jesus option. It's not flight. It's not fight. It's food. <laughs> this isn't a joke. <laughs> the Christian response to hostility is hospitality. It's not a sword. It's not a cave. It's a hamburger. <laughs> it's good wine. It's good food. It's good company. It's around a table. It's on some couches. It's around a campfire. It's going out for a coffee. It's let's chat about this over a beer. Jesus' response so often to hostility, uh, people whinging, people murmuring, people that didn't like him, the Pharisees of the day, so often Jesus' response was, let's eat. Let's eat. Let's eat about that. Let's go sit down and chat over a coffee and sort this out. Hey, let's go back to your place and have a meal. Let's not argue in the streets here. Let's go eat and see what happens. The Christian response to hostility is hospitality. Let's flip it the other way. Maybe it's not hostility. Maybe it's apathy or indifference towards the Christian faith, the Bible, the Christian God. It's still the same answer. Even if there's ignorance and indifference and, and no one really cares about what those Christian people believe, still Jesus' answer would be, hospitality. You know, we've looked at the seven core practices in this spiritual practices series, things like fasting and uh, things like prayer, scripture. We've dived deep into Sabbath. We did two weeks on that. And, but there's lots and lots of other practices as well. And if, if, if I could choose a number eight practice, it would probably be hospitality. Hospitality is the radically ordinary practice of inviting people to eat and drink together. We express God's love, God's loving welcome, sorry, by generously giving people food, shelter, and relationship. Hospitality is radically ordinary. Radically ordinary. Who eats? 
Put your hand up if you eat. Put your hand up if you drink. Like drink liquid beverages, all right? I mean drink as in alcohol. I mean drink as in liquid beverages. Okay, we all eat and we all drink. Is that radical? Is that like laying down your life for Jesus? Not really. But when it becomes hospitality in order to love, in order to include, in order to reach out, in order to offer someone shelter or food or clothing or just friendship, then it begins to become radical. Because the motive isn't, I need to consume food in order to sustain my body. The motive is, I want to use food to share life, to do life, to practice hospitality. In the Old Testament, hospitality was a continual theme. And often God would talk to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and his concern was for the poor, was for the widow, and it was for the stranger. Or if you're an older person who used to read an older version of the Bible, it was for the alien. But if you're younger, you're going to be like, that's really going to mess you up. What do you mean? There's aliens in the Old Testament? There was in the older versions. Let's just call them stranger, okay? So someone who wasn't a Jew, somebody who was living with the people of Israel. And God would often say to the people of Israel, why should you show hospitality? Why should you include the poor? I mean, you got money, you got options, you got stuff to do. Why bother about the guy down the street who wasted his money or threw away his money or never had money? Why worry about the widow? Like, she'll be okay. Yeah, she's lost her husband. She's got no source of income now, but she'll find her way. Why care about the stranger or the alien? So it makes it weird, doesn't it? We don't care about aliens. Let's strangers who are from a foreign place. Like, they're not our people. We're the Jews. We're God's people. You know what God would always say? would say, because you were once slaves in Egypt also. Isn't that powerful? He would remind the Israelites in the Old Testament, show hospitality because once you were a foreigner in Egypt, once you were a slave. And if you don't know the story of Israel, they spent 400 years as the slaves of the Egyptians until God set them free through the prophet Moses and led them out of Egypt and into what's called the promised land, because you were once a slave, you were once a nobody, you were once an outsider, you once didn't have any friends. Show hospitality, welcome somebody else in. And I think we can modernize that for us today. Even as a Christian, I thank God that he found me, that he saved me, that he brought me in from the cold. How much more should I show hospitality because of that? In the New Testament now, the, so the early church, hospitality was a, a basic command. It was assumed that everyone would open up not only their hearts, but would open up their homes, would open up their fridges, would open up their lives, would open up for relationship. In 1 Timothy 3, 2, it's actually a qualification of anybody who has a leadership in the position in the church, one of the qualifications was they must be good at showing hospitality. In the New Testament, there's a clear inner and outer aspect to hospitality. So the inner aspect is brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're going to church with people, if you're journeying the Christian walk together with brothers and sisters in the same church, show hospitality to one another. Share your food. Ask people to your home. Make sure you've got an open table. You know, and for some of us, this really grinds against this kind of, this overhang of our English heritage, maybe, where every man has his castle, and every person has their home, which is their fortress. That's where I, you know, take my pants off at the end of the day when I come home from work, and I'm a man, and I sit on the couch in my jocks and watch the footy, and this is my home. I'm not inviting people in here. None of you do that? Okay, maybe it's just just at my place. I don't know. (laughs) But we like to look at our home, we have bigger homes than anyone has ever existed in human history. By square meterage, we have the biggest houses of the humans, bigger than any humans that have ever lived. Square meterage through the roof. We have rooms that we don't use. We have rooms full of clothes that we don't need and stuff that we've stored in there. We don't have space to invite over a stranger. We don't have space to give somebody a bear. We don't have space in our hearts but we actually do have space around our tables. We don't have space in our schedules, but we actually do have food in the cupboard that we could feed somebody. Jesus confronts hostility, tension between Christianity and decline. What do people think of our faith? Do they think we're good or bad? Jesus confronts that by saying, let's eat. 
come over to my house. Or Jesus often says, hey, why don't I come over to your house? Like that kind of reverse hospitality. You show me some hospitality, I'll come hang out with you if you want to do that. Jesus builds bridges by eating and drinking. And when Jesus enters the scene, all of a sudden the, the gospels turn into this, these gospels of parties, of food, of weddings with wine and water turned to wine. Even as he's calling his disciples, like he calls Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, and then he says, I'll come eat at your house, and he ends up eating at Matthew's house. And guess what? Because Matthew's a tax collector. His only friends are tax collectors. And Jesus hangs out with them, and he, he receives the name of, of one who eats with sinners. Jesus receives the title of a glutton and a drunkard because he tends to eat and drink a lot. But Jesus isn't concerned by what people are labeling with. He's trying to show us that this is the way to build relationship. This is the way to reach out to people. This is the way to include people. The story of the Good Samaritan is a story of hospitality, covering up somebody who's been beaten up, somebody who's been uh, given a bad deal, somebody who's been taken advantage of, and the uh, Good Samaritan cleans up the man cleans up his wounds, pays for his time in hospital, feeds him, clothes him. The Last Supper, which is the, the famous Last Supper of Jesus Christ with his disciples on the Thursday night before Easter, he's eating, he's drinking, and this is where he introduces communion and said, this is my body, this bread is my body, this drink, this cup is my blood. It all happens. The, the picture of Jesus dying on the cross is a picture of hospitality. It happens within the context of food and drink. And Jesus uses food and drink, food around a table to symbolize his death and his sacrifice on the cross. Because in his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus was showing us the hospitality of God. That God's heart is open. That God's divine table is open. That God's invite to come into his kingdom, to come into his home, God's divine hospitality is open for every single human being. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus enters Jericho, it says, and he was passing through. And there was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was chief tax collector and was wealthy. Everyone say chief tax collector. Now, we hear about tax collectors in the Bible, right? And they are the most hated people in town. They are despised. This is the only time in the Bible where we hear there was a chief tax collector. So this guy wasn't just a scoundrel robbing money off his Jewish counterparts. He was chief of the tax collectors. He was the tax system, the corrupt tax system that was destroying people's financial futures. It was this man, and he has a name, it's Zacchaeus. The tax collectors were the most hated in the community because they were Jews, except their job was to collect the taxes off their Jewish brothers and sisters and give it to the Romans. The Romans were ruling Israel at that time, and Israel was effectively slaves in their own country. And then these tax collectors would step away from their Jewish community, essentially betraying their brothers and sisters and high school mates and guys from the footy club, betraying them and saying, I'm going to take money, your money, and there's nothing you can do about it. Why? Because the tax collector has the protection of the Roman army. So he can extort his brothers and sisters and become super rich. The Romans turn a blind eye. He can charge whatever he wants in his tax bill as long as he passes on the percentage that the Romans demand. He can charge whatever over the top he wants. And Zacchaeus did that, and he was actually so good at it that he had a whole company of tax collectors, and he was despised and hated in the town. Now, Jesus enters Jericho, and he's not there to stay. He's not there to hang out. He's not there to eat and drink. He is passing through. He's actually on his way to Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 9, 51 is where the gospel of Luke moves from Galilee towards Jerusalem. So if you've ever studied the gospel of Luke, you'll see that the, all the stories at the beginning of Luke for the first nine chapters, or nine chapters and 51 verses, are all about his ministry in Galilee. And then Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem and all of his ministry heads towards Jerusalem where it will ultimately climax in his crucifixion 
on the cross. So Jesus is essentially passing through Jericho on the way to the cross with his mind, his heart set on the crucifixion that is to come. Verse 3, this Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. He was this super famous rabbi that was kicking around town and everybody knew who Jesus was. Everybody had heard about the miracles. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, not only was he, was he wealthy, but it sounds like he was short and he's probably fat and he was probably ugly as well. He was an outsider. He was not just an outsider because he was corrupt, but people, everyone knew him, but nobody cared about him. You can imagine this short man trying to see over the crowd to see Jesus, and this is everybody's chance to go, get out the road, Zacchaeus, a little bit of an elbow to the nose. Nobody wants to let him through. Nobody wants to give him access to Jesus. I mean, you get your money, you are corrupt and robbed from all of us. This is our turn. You know, the, Jesus is the man of the people. Jesus is going to come to the little children and the poor people and the people, the struggling kind of people. Everyone's kind of keeping Zacchaeus out the road, but he's keen to see Jesus. He wants to get in the game. He wants to, there's something about his wealth that is not satisfying his soul. And there's something about Jesus that just gets him oh, interested. It's just, it just piqued his curiosity. Who is this guy? Who is this man who walks around with no money and no special clothes and no kind of career that anyone can really understand what he's doing? Who is this Jesus? Zacchaeus is so curious that he puts all of his effort in. The richest guy in town is climbing up a tree now just to get a look at who Jesus could be. There's an openness there. There's a willingness there. He's trying to make a connection, but he's so far, so corrupt, such a sinner. And Jesus is so holy and so righteous and the man of the people. And he's up the tree. There's a distance there. There's a gap there. Nobody's interested in helping Zacchaeus get through the crowd to Jesus. Everyone wants to, if there's anything they could keep him away from, it's Jesus who's great. And Zacchaeus who's, who's gross, disgusting. No, no one wants him to have access. Who is Zacchaeus in your world? Who is Zacchaeus in your life? Who is Zacchaeus in your neighborhood, your school community, your workplace? Maybe he's your neighbor, maybe he's your colleague, maybe he's in your own family, maybe he's one of your mates. He doesn't really deserve to get the good stuff of Jesus. He's never really tried very hard to do anything right. But there's some kind of tiny, tiny 1% of him that's open. There's some part deep in his heart or her heart that's screaming out for Jesus, screaming out for more. Now, verse 5 tells us that when Jesus reached the spot, there's the sycamore tree, Jesus reached that spot, he looks up to him. And he straight away says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once, welcomed him gladly. Jesus has chosen me out of the crowd. <laughs> Do you think there'd be a sense of guilt and shame there? Oh, out of all these people, I'm definitely not the one who should be seen by this rabbi, this healer, this miracle worker, this man of the people. Ugh. But he's happy, he's glad. Guess what the response from the crowd is? All the people saw this and began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. <coughs> the chief sinner, the worst sinner. Everyone is muttering. There's tension in the air. There's hostility in the air. This man's a kiss. He is not deserving there's a strong opinion in the crowd of who should spend time with Jesus and who should not spend so much time with Jesus. Everyone's quick to jump into the judgment seat and cast their judgment 
on this sermon or that church or that policy or this thing or those new statistics that have come out in the census. <coughs> Excuse me. There's a strong opinion. This is interesting. There's a strong opinion on what Jesus should do with his time, on where Jesus should eat and shouldn't eat, on who Jesus should hang out with and not hang out with. But Jesus practices hospitality in order to quell the hostility, quell the tension, and build relational bridges. <coughs> Jesus isn't going to Zacchaeus' home to win a soul, to mark down, ooh, I, I got someone to transition from Islam to Christianity. Ooh, look at me. I helped someone who was a non-believing agnostic come into the faith. Aren't I fantastic? No, Jesus used hospitality to build genuine, authentic, real relationships with people. Verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up after spending some time with Jesus, after eating and drinking, after spending the afternoon hanging out together. Zacchaeus stands up and said to the Lord, said to Jesus, look, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I cheated anybody of, out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus' heart is transformed. His mind is changed. His priorities are adjusted. His money is reorganized and redistributed because of eating and drinking with Jesus. You see, Jesus' response of, hey, let's eat. You got to eat? I'm going to eat, let's eat, results in lives transforming and tr salvation coming. Not only did it come to Zacchaeus, but it tells us right here in the story, it actually came to his whole household. Hospitality doesn't affect just one person, but it begins to go out. It's contagious. It touches lives. It touches households. It touches whole families, whole streets, whole neighborhoods. It gets everywhere because everyone's got to eat. Everyone wants to talk. There's nothing like food, there's nothing like a beer, there's nothing like a coffee to just bring down some walls and allow people to enter into more intimate discussions, deeper discussions about real things in life. There's nothing wrong with small talk, but food and, food and drink, hospitality, time helps us go beyond the small talk and get into somewhere deeper. If you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and you might be watching this morning of lots of people watching online all the time who are not sure about faith or asking questions about faith, first and foremost, God welcomes you into his kingdom. God is the essence of hospitality, inviting in the poor, the naked, the prisoner, the unlovely, the tax collector into his most sacred and special place. If you are a follower of Jesus, then I want to talk for a few moments as we finish off, and then we're going to take communion together about what it can look like actually turning this into something a lot more practical. As a church, we have this discipleship process, which is called Connect. We call it Connect, Grow, Reach. And basically, it's just taking the biblical process of following Jesus, and we've put some of our own words to it and put a bit of a diagram around it. And this is how, as a church, we encourage people to spiritually grow in their faith. Now, this process we begins with connecting to Jesus. Everyone has to have their own deep individual connection and relationship to God. It's not my job uh, to keep you connected to Him. It's your job to connect to Him. I'm here to facilitate the church, leaders, life groups, all these things are there to facilitate, help and support you to have your own personal relationship with God. But then as that matures and grows, as a Christian, we're encouraged to not just have an individual connection, but that that connection will become something that we do together with brothers and sisters in Christ, people that believe, that have the same faith. So we grow together in our faith. And God has set Christianity up in a way that you can't grow on your own. He doesn't let you get very far on your own. He asks you to rely on those who have faith as well. <coughs> Finally, as we follow Jesus, our faith that started individually, that grew into the church, 
then becomes something that reaches out beyond the four walls of the church. And this is where, in the Reach Our Community, the blue leaf there, it's really the final platform of launching out with the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom of God, into the highways and the byways, into the neighborhoods and the streets. You know, half a million people live within 10 minutes' drive of this church. 500,000 people live in this little area. A lot of them are in Langwarren, the most non-believing suburb in all of Australia. And the best way that we can reach them is not through some program that a church or a bunch of churches come up with, not by Pastor Caleb going out on the street corners and preaching great sermons and hoping to draw people uh, from the street corners into the church. The way that God has designed, the method that Jesus used to connect people to faith, to reach people, to come. Jesus said it in the Gospel of Luke there. Luke says it about Jesus, that Jesus came to seek, so to seek out, to look for the lost, to seek and to save the lost. And his method of choice was not sermons, it was not street corners, it was not evangelistic programs administrated by a church. His greatest method that he used was eating and drinking and talking and building relationships. Not in stadiums, not in church auditoriums filled with thousands of people, but in the humble homes, humble cafes, restaurants, park benches, just having a coffee, chatting it out over a beer, asking someone to come and have dinner at your place. This is how we reach the community. And this is something that we can all do. This is something that is not just for the few or the gifted. This is something that everybody couldn't do. My first encouragement, and then we're going to take communion around these three things, is to build a bridge into your local community. You know, Pastor Andrew is very involved in his uh, cricket club. These are great ways to do through sports through dance clubs, through schools, gyms, all kinds of places, clubs that you're involved in. You know, new mums groups are great when you have a baby and they put you together with six or eight women who just had babies in the local area. I know many mums have taken that opportunity just to connect and it's all about hanging out and food and new mums getting together. I know Helen's been involved in community gardens and men's sheds and building things and she's great like that. You know, the first thing that we need to understand about Jesus is that he was out and about. Jesus was out and about. He was known. People knew him because he was out there. He wasn't hidden. <laughs> he wasn't in some office somewhere. He wasn't behind some computer. He was out and about in the local community, building bridges. The second thing is to practice hospitality. Practice this has been this whole series. Practice means training. It means giving it a go. It means trial and error. It means I had a crack at hospitality and it was a pretty sucky meat pie that I cooked, but I'm going to cook a better one next time. I had a crack at talking to someone over a coffee. It was a bit awkward. I need to work on my you know, communication skills or asking better questions, but I'm going to ask someone out for a co coffee next time. Practice hospitality. Your brothers and sisters in Christ in this church, no one knows everyone in this church. Start easy. Just ask someone you go to church with. Hey, I don't know you much. Let's have a coffee this week. Practice hospitality. I think the life group hosts in our church are amazing. Those people that open up their homes every week to have life groups in. You know, to open up your home for a life group, it means you've got to clean your house. It means you've got to set up some chairs. It means you've got to think about some food. It means you've got to invite people in for a couple of hours and they might not go for three hours or four hours. Who knows what's going to happen? That's hospitality. But it's amazing how difficult it is just for people to open up their home to some mates in their own church. Because hospitality, it does require a little bit of sacrifice. It does require a bit of an open heart. But it's not something that just for the gifted. It's something that all of us can do. Hospitality, practicing hospitality means celebrating. A huge amount of us from church were at a wedding yesterday for Sam and Laura, and it was a great day celebrating. And guess what? Once the ceremony finished, we all went home. No, we didn't. Guess what we did? 
We went to a reception and we ate food and we had many different drinks and we danced and we hung out and everyone moved around tables and chatted to each other. We practiced hospitality and celebrated the wedding of a couple in our church with food and dancing and talking and lights and fun. And we did it from the ceremony started at two and I went home at about 11. So I gave nine hours to practicing hospitality yesterday. And I've got richer relationships. I had great conversations. I saw an awesome young couple married. I met people that I never knew before. We practiced hospitality and the kingdom of God moves forward. Get better at holding conversations. This is something, sadly, that in our modern world, we've lost so much, just the art of asking a good question, that someone can just share a bit of their life, asking some leading questions. And when you get asked a question, answering with more than yes, no, good, bad, okay, bit sick, busy, not so busy. Practice hospitality, practice talking, dialoguing, practice asking better questions, practice sharing your heart a little bit. Why are you so confidential about everything? It's like, oh, everything's just so ultra private. Share your life, tell someone you're limping. No, I had a crap week. When does anyone say that? No, I'm struggling a bit at the moment. You know, I'm just working through some stuff. It's okay. No one thought you were awesome anyway. No one thought you were perfect anyway. They're not perfect, the person asking you the question. We're all working through our junk. Learn to listen. Learn to ask questions better. Practice hospitality. When you get home this afternoon from church and you see your neighbor parking their car, rather than doing one of these to your front door, walk across the road to your neighbor getting out of their car. How difficult is this? Hey, man, how you going? How's your week been? How's the kids? Have a conversation for 10 minutes. If it goes well, because you're not going to be doing much this afternoon, say to them, hey, do you want to come over and have a beer? Come on, come over. Like, I've got beers in the fridge. Sit down for half an hour and actually meet your neighbor. Learn about them. Ask them a question. Practice hospitality. And the final thing is share the gospel. We don't practice hospitality to share the gospel. Christianity is not a switch and, and bait. We're not like, oh, I'm going to do some hospitality and then maybe I can win a soul and I can come back to church and say to Pastor Caleb, I, I helped get someone saved. That's, that's not what we're about. Don't be weird, please, because that doesn't help the Christian faith. Weird Christians doing weird religious stuff. Jesus didn't go out to win Zacchaeus' heart. He went out to build relationships by sitting around his table with him. God changed Zacchaeus' heart. Jesus built the bridge. God is asking you not to change anyone's heart because you can't do it anyway. Only God can transform a life. But he is asking you to open up your table. He is asking you to practice hospitality. He is asking you to be intentional about building relationships. And he is asking you that if the opportunity arises, give an answer for the faith that you profess. Share the gospel, just, just the one-minute gospel, the one-sentence gospel. Just tell people, the reason I live like this is because I believe in Jesus. The reason I go to church on Sundays isn't because my parents went to church on Sundays, isn't because I have to go to church on Sundays as a Christian. I go because I want to worship God, and it's a huge priority for me. I believe in Jesus, and I take it really seriously. Bang! You've just shared the gospel in a non-weird way, in a couple of sentences. You've just put it on your friend's radar. That's all God's asking you to do, is just be honest about what you already believe in. That's sharing the gospel. Within the context of hospitality and eating and drinking, this could help your Zacchaeus come to a place where they say, they stand up and say, of their own free will, not under coercion, not under Christian manipulation, but of their own free will, just the Holy Spirit working in their heart, they say, I have sinned. Now that I'm sitting here eating and drinking, I'm realizing I've stolen I've done some wrong things. I'm going to give back. I'm going to give the money back. I'm going to sort my life out. And then like Jesus, you can sit there and just say, fantastic. Salvation has come to this house. Salvation is... Could you imagine that? If a couple of neighbors in your street, a couple of friends at work had that Zacchaeus God encounter and you were just there sitting on the couch going, wow. 
I asked someone for a coffee. I walked across the street and actually had a conversation with my neighbors. I got out of the car. Wow. And God, you just transformed their life. Salvation came to my street because I was willing to take five minutes to have a conversation, willing to take an hour to have a meal, willing to just you know, sweep my floor, whack something in the oven for a half an hour and I invite someone for a meal and salvation has come to these lives and these houses and these people and someone's got communion for me. Let's just stand up this morning. Thank you, Dirk. Thank you. Thank you, Lord God. Our spiritual practice for the week is, you're going to be able to pick it now, share a meal with someone. If that's too hard, share a drink with someone. If it's too hard to invite them to your house for some reason, you're not there yet, invite them to a cafe. Or do, do it Jesus style and say, I'm going to your house. <laughs> you know, I asked someone for lunch this week and uh, we were going to go to the cafe and then they said, I've got some leftover food from dinner last night. So I said, I did it Jesus style. I said, bring that leftover food. Don't worry about the cafe. I'll eat your leftovers. Bring them in, heat it up. And we did that in my office and we had lunch with their food. And we practiced hospitality and we talked about life and we grieved a bit together and we laughed a bit together and we moved the kingdom of God forward. As always, there's a few points on the website there just to help you understand a bit maybe or teach you a bit how you could actually do it. The second point is about actually praying before you go out for dinner or before they come or before you just pray just ask God to enter God is the ultimate host divine hospitality rules and reigns in the kingdom of God the end of time is a great wedding banquet and a great feast that's the picture of the heaven coming to earth it's the picture of a wedding banquet a few of us were at a wedding banquet last night that's a picture of heaven on earth it's talking it's chatting it's God in our midst it's great food it's good wine it's a great time it's dancing it's singing it's celebrating this is the picture of heaven why do you all look so somber <laughs> now nah, there's many smiles it's beautiful isn't this beautiful it hits our heart And the discussion questions as well are around hospitality to chat with that with your life group or in your home. Lord, we come before you today. Lord, your body and your blood was essentially your invite into divine hospitality. Your body and your blood, your crucifixion on the cross that welcomed us in to the greatest home that we've ever known your home, Lord God, that we could experience heaven on earth, that we could know what it is like to be in relationship with God. You talk into our hearts. We talk back to you. We celebrate many, many Sundays around food and drink that represent your body and your blood. We're going to serve some food out of our little cafe in a minute as church finishes and maybe some of us will grab a coffee. Lord God, hospitality, hosting one another is so important. Just as you hold in your hands God's hospitality, God's invite, His body and His blood, just close your eyes. Just take a moment to meditate on this word this morning. Jesus quelled any hostility through hospitality. Jesus practiced hospitality in order to build relationships. Just meditate on that for a moment. That's it. Just spend a moment. Just pray in your own heart. Pray out loud if you want. Just talk to God for a moment. What's He saying to you today? What's He speaking to you today?
finally, who's the Zacchaeus in your life? Just meditate on that for a moment. Just talk to God about that. Is Zacchaeus a neighbor, a colleague, a family member? That's probably the person you need to ask for a meal this week. If you're really bold, that's probably the one. Are you here this morning and you are Zacchaeus? You're the one who feels so distant from Jesus, but you're willing to climb a tree to have a little look. You don't expect Jesus to stop, but Jesus has stopped right in front of you today. And you're Zacchaeus. You're the one who needs help. You're the one who's stuck. for that person right now just see them in your mind's eye picture them in your imagination see yourself walking into that that house that building God is such a hospitable God presence of God, the anointing of God, it really comes when we invite one another, when we invite people into relationship, when we build bridges, you know, God is attracted to that, the anointing of God comes, God loves it when we break our our routines, when we break our silly schedules that we think are so important, we're willing to break those to love a stranger, to visit a prisoner to clothe the naked to give drink to the thirsty to give food to the hungry oh God loves that that is the kingdom of God Lord as we dwell on this we just take the bread this morning the cracker just as a representation of your body so feel free to eat this morning we take it in reverence and we take the blood your blood that washes us clean your blood that's available to all people to wash them clean even the worst sinner the chief tax collector your blood is good enough your blood was good enough for Zacchaeus, your blood is good enough for us your blood is good enough for our neighbour just take the drink this morning thank you Lord